Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for coming out. Um, my name is Vanessa Richardson. I'm the one who put this together along with KB Brandel of Sedwork. So this is a joint venture between Sedwork and California Groundbreakers. I think you probably know a lot about Sedwork now uh, since it's been around for a while. Uh, let me just briefly tell you a little bit about me and what I'm trying to do, what this is about, why you're here, why they're here. So the organization is called California Groundbreakers. It's officially a civic engagement organization. The focus is uh, highlighting cool people who are doing cool things in the state of California, having them talk about what they're doing in cool venues such as this um, in the Sacramento area, uh, ideally other parts of California later on down the road. But it is based on an organization that you may have heard of in the Bay Area called the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. Um, I, I grew up in SAC, but I lived in San Francisco and I put together events for that organization. They do all types of events, everything from how China is gonna affect the US economy for better or worse, all the way down to, or not down, but differently to, why dating is so challenging in San Francisco, which actually was a very, I think the most well-attended event that I ever put together, so go figure. Um, but basically, uh, moving back here last year, I thought, why don't we have something like this in the Sacramento-Davis area where we have events that focus on the cool things that are happening here and the cool people who are doing them. So this is officially the fourth, fifth event that uh, has happened, and the first one I'm putting on with a partner, and it's kind of like a test pilot. I'm I'm being kind of masochistic this month, trying to put together events because it's um, election time, so there's some ballot initiatives, but I wanted to also take advantage of the outdoor venue here at Sedwork before it got really rainy and cold, and we really lucked out today, so good job, Kath KB. Um, so the focus today, why I why this event is happening is about a couple of weeks ago, I went to an event that the an organization called the Greater SAC Ec Area Economic Council put together. They're ones that are trying to get more business to come into uh, Sacramento from the Bay Area and other parts. And they are taking a big look at ag agriculture technology or ag tech. I don't, I don't even know what the official term is, but ag tech. Ag tech will do it all. But it was basically... They were opening up, it was free, and it was for the general public, but it was like at three o'clock during, on a Thursday, and it was mostly suits, mostly bankers, mostly industry people, and I was the only one from the general community. And I, I learned a lot, it was really interesting, and I thought, well, I'm a resident of the Sacramento area, I'm a taxpayer, this, this is interesting to me, it's also gonna affect me in some way. I, I don't know yet, but I just know it's a big deal and it will continue to be a big deal. So if I'm interested in it, maybe other people will. So I started asking panelists and other organizations, what do you think about having a panel on this? Definitely, so KB was on board and we're putting it together. So the goal is, again, to have topics that are all over the place in terms of what's going on here in the, in the area agriculture, the arts, education, uh, policy, politics, because that's obviously a big deal. Um, the whole urban planning thing, what's going on with the arena, what's going on with uh, um, transportation in the future, um, the ballot initiatives that we're all working on or have to think about in the next two weeks. Um, I'm actually having an event tomorrow in Roseville on their Measure M, the whole transportation tax, sales tax thing. So a lot of stuff going on. 
I want to apologize, though. In, uh, I think I already did to the panelists. This is I don't want to say this was slapped together, but it was really um, I put it together in a week. So thank you so much for coming out. The, now I'm going to be putting to out events Tomorrow I'm going to start booking events for January. Um, so I do have a website up. I do have an email list. Um, if you guys want to keep posted on the events that will be happening and will be done um, with more advance notice, <laughs> uh, uh, give me your business card or see me afterwards. I just got MailChimp. I'm putting an email list together, a newsletter to let you guys know. So it is obviously a, a one-person show right now. I have an advisory council, but ramping up, starting small, but the goal is to, to, to make it bigger and, and better. So uh, with that being said, just going to give you a little um, um, uh, heads up about how this is structured. Uh, I'm going to be asking questions to the panelists for 45 minutes or so, and depending on whether you look interested or you're you're nodding off, then I'm going to turn the mic over to you, and it's right there in the middle of the aisle. Um, I have a whole bunch of questions, but I may not get them to all, and you probably have really good ones that I haven't even thought of, so please don't be shy. I will give you about a five-minute heads up. Please um, go to the mic and, and line up or, you know, just when we're ready. And I guess the hard stop will be 7.40, but it's such a lovely night. Please, of course, you're welcome to stay until closing time and have more beer. So I just want to make sure the panelists, if anyone else needs a refill, I have my rice beer, which I have to say is great. I really, really like it. So with, let's sit down. And um, I usually just start to my left and, and ask the panelists to introduce themselves because they do it better than I would. And I just want to say... If we can start with Joe, if you can say your name and who you're with, um, what your role is or a current project you're working on in the ag tech area. And I always like to ask a personal note that'll benefit me as well as you guys. I don't, I'd like to know more about where to eat in Yellow County, Woodland, West Sac, uh, Winters, wherever, anywhere from a hole in the wall to high end, any good recommendations. So after you tell me about what you do, tell me what your recommendation is for where to eat in Yellow County. Great. Thanks, Vanessa. So uh, my name is Joe Kepnick, and I'm Associate Director at uh, UC Davis Venture Catalyst Group, which is an office within uh, the Office of Research. Um, so what we do is we help companies get started based on UCD technology, or if you're associated with UCD, if you're a current um, faculty member or staff, we'll help you get a company started. Um, that's enough of an introduction. So the, my, my, uh, my favorite place to eat is home because <laughs> my daughter and my wife are pretty good cooks. And so that works out well. But I like mustard seed right here in Davis. It's one of my favorite places. And also I call it bread and butter, but I think it's bread and butter. Uh, no, I'm sorry, bacon and butter, which is uh, bacon and butter in Sacramento. That's a good one. Yeah. Thank you. All right, I'm Jeremy Warren. I'm uh, CEO of Astrona Biotechnologies. We're a UC Davis startup that came through the Venture Catalyst program that Joe just told you about. Thanks for that pitch. Yeah. <laughs> we'll go more into that probably as we go along. Uh, as far as places to eat, uh, besides Sudworks here, is, uh, I like Sam's Mediterranean, which is on 3rd and B in downtown Davis. Good food. 
My name is Christy Levings, and I wear a couple of different hats. Um, at my foundation, I'm a farmer. I'm actually a third-generation farmer here in Yolo County. My family does about 4,000 acres of grain haze and custom harvesting and orchard crops and livestock. And livestock happens to be my particular talent and passion, so my personal farm is livestock, although I'm taking a farming sabbatical this year because I just had a baby not that long ago. And my other hats, I work for the Yolo County Department of Agriculture as their farm budsman. Yes, that's a real word. And my final hat, I'm the program director for AgStart, which is a nonprofit business incubator program that helps startup and early stage ag tech companies graduate from concept all the way to commercialization. So we help them at very early stage through beta testing, through investment. And I have some rock stars who are doing the most incredible ag tech work I've ever seen in my life. And in terms of where I like to eat, I'll tell you the truth. When you're a farmer, <laughs> it's very easy to make friends with chefs. And I have sold my product for many years to some of the finest chefs that I have ever met in this region. And so I would say that I've eaten at many of the best restaurants in town just out the back door when I'm making deliveries. What's the new one then that uh, maybe needs a little uh, marketing a new chef that would could get a little push here. The hottest chefs, I'll use Woodland as an example. The hottest chefs in Woodland is one over at Savory Cafe and ask for anything off menu. Just ask him to make whatever he wants to. And uh, Justin over at Father Patty's. And again, off menu is always better, I think. So, Christy, the hottest chefs, is that like in terms of looks or in terms of Hey, food? if you can't stand the heat in the yeah, kitchen, man. <laughs> Great. So, thanks so much for having me here tonight. Uh, my name is Sarah Hovinga. I'm a microbiologist uh, with Bear Crop Science. Um, in my role, what I do since uh, we're, we're developing at our site biological crop protection and promoting agents. And so, as a microbiologist and with biologicals being kind of new to the scene, I do a lot of training both internal and external saying, you know, down to what is a microbe, you know, how does it uh, uh, symbiotically interact with the plant to how can I use this microbe in my field for, for a, a benefit to a grower, for example. Um, so in terms of my favorite restaurants, I think it's a bit of a tie. I love Ludi's and on Main Street in Woodland, and then I also like uh, the Buckhorn in Winters. Buckhorn, okay. Thank you. And also, I should mention that we are recording this uh, as a podcast to upload onto the California Groundbreakers website. So you will be living on in eternity as well as whoever's up at the, the mic. So just FYI. So I wanted to start with a question for each one of you. Um, I was doing some research on ag tech, but as a, as just a resident of the area that I'm a journalist, so I'm I, I write about startups, but uh, the closest I get to ag is probably eating food and maybe going to the pumpkin patch. Um, but I was curious when I saw that a bear and Monsanto, those are names I know, were building fairly recently big um, um, establishments here in West Sac. So Sarah, I wanted to ask you about Bayer, which is headquartered in Germany, is that right? And they came here a few years ago and built a, a pretty big establishment. What, since you, well, I, how long have you been with Bayer, by the way, since they started here or? 
So I originally actually started just across the freeway, speaking of startups, at a startup uh, company named AgriQuest that uh, discovered and developed biological products for growers. And so that's where I started in 2005 um, as a microbiologist in research. Um, I've been working in plant pathology, our chemistry laboratory, our microbiology laboratory. And then in 2012, Bayer acquired AgriQuest. Um, we needed to grow beyond what our facilities here in Davis allowed. I took a six-month hiatus as part of the construction team because apparently I was the only one who could uh, translate what the, what the laboratory staff needed to the, the contractors. So I was that conduit. We, um, we then built facilities in Yolo County in West Sacramento uh, off of um, Embarcadero. And so that's where our headquarters are for all bear biological research uh, globally, even though our headquarters are located in Germany. So it sounds like a big deal to me. So what, what did Bayer, when you went on board and what they told you, what do they see here in Yolo County? Why do they set up shop? What are they focusing on here? How important it is to the big scheme yeah. of things? Yeah. yeah, so let's yeah. go ahead and have Either. some participation. Christy, do you have? Okay, so I work for the Yolo County Department of Agriculture. And I want to give you a little bit of context about why all the major seed research and seed breeding companies are here in Yolo County. So Yolo County is number one or top five generally. We switch back and forth um, in terms of crop diversity in the nation. There's a lot of other counties in the nation that produce more volume than we do, but there are very, very few that produce more diversity. We actually do about 340-something different crops, which is highly, highly unusual, and that's a gift. Um, that's the collaboration of you know our beautiful climate and our wonderful soils and our access to water. And so um, that is a key ingredient for why you see Bear, Monsanto, Syngenta, you know, Marone, that's why you see a lot of them here. And I would actually argue that the context of Yolo County is probably uh, a, a large player in why UC Davis has been so successful as an ag research facility is because of this, um, this place where we are. So then the big ones coming into town, and I know AgStart, you are helping small companies, one person or a few get their start so um, what are they focusing on is it crop the crops I know that's a big focus seed is that what they're focusing on or are the startups doing other types of uh, um, focuses or are they looking at any specific technological application to crop and seeds like apps or uh, using big data uh, just curious to see what the technological focus is in the startups that you're seeing develop yeah, I would say that we run the entire gamut of ag tech. So ag tech is a spectrum of lots of different technologies. And ag tech has um, three purposes for being in the world. And if it cannot hit at least two out of three of these, then it probably doesn't belong in the market. And those three, those three legs of the stool that it needs to stand on, it needs to do three things for the farm. The first is that it needs to increase yield. The second is that it needs to lower inputs, and that could be time, labor, water, chemicals, whatever that input happens to be. And the last is that it needs to boost the bottom line for farmers. If it doesn't do at least two out of three of those, then it probably isn't going to be a successful technology. So that's the, the yardstick by which we measure ag tech and the entire gamut of technologies that do at two out of three of those 
that's what we're looking for. In terms of what we have at AgStart, we have about 16 different clients, which is kind of extraordinary for a startups. And we have about 85% of those come from the Bay Area. We have, uh, or migrate from the Bay Area. And the, again, they're coming here because they wanna work with our farmers, because they wanna test their technologies in this envelope of diversity. Um, and they, probably half and half do some sort of physical real world application like a soil moisture sensor or a seed counting device or some sort of actual real tech and the other half um, some sort of app I would say we're low on um, on on seed applications or or biologic applications because those generally require a long incubation period that I'm uh, you'll hear from my compadre here a long incubation period of research and development where some of the devices and the apps and that kind of thing are a little bit faster to market so that's what we see at AgStart and that's what we see here in Yolo County. So yeah Jeremy I was going to ask you next about your company and uh, the migration from where you started to where you are now. Yeah, so um, Astronomy Biotechnology has actually started out as a grant from at UC Davis to develop better methods to detect pathogens. And then through Venture Catalyst, we formed a company and we applied to a biotechnology accelerator in San Francisco called IndieBio. And so the whole point of that accelerator is very similar to AgStart. They provide um, funding for your company and they also provide you mentorship and they you know, basically turn your scientific idea into a product and make you a business. And it was a four and a half month program. And so what that entailed was the founders traveling from Davis to San Francisco every day, <laughs> leaving at 5.30 and coming back at 7. <laughs> hey, where were, you, where were you going to? San Francisco, yeah. So it was downtown San Francisco, just south of Market on Jesse Street's little alley there. Um, there's a fully functional, uh, there's interesting characters around the area. There's a guy on a little rascal scooter that blasted like salsa music every morning. It was pretty exciting. But uh, <laughs> the whole point of going out there is to kind of broaden our as well as learning business, broaden our contacts, you know, because the Bay Area is a really good spot to um, actually make the contacts you need, like with investors and things. And that's, think that's something we're working on here in Yellow County. And, um, but right now, it, it does help companies to go out there and come back, because um, until we build up a bigger startup community and entrepreneurship community here, we kind of have to go away for some time and come back. So I, I had two questions based on that. The first one was, were you, um, you got your start at UC Davis like as an undergrad and then a grad student? And yeah, I did my undergrad in biochemistry at UC Davis and then okay. I got a PhD in plant pathology. Okay, so. and then I know uh, writing about startups, a lot of them have, you know, the big, sometimes grandiose idea like my app is going to change the way things are done I'm the next uber or you know we're gonna just like disrupt the industry so is there something that Astrona is gonna do because it sounds like this device is pretty cool but yeah where so do you see it where do you see taking it to exactly so the the core of Astrona biotechnologies are is our science which is the detection platform so our, our first market is the food safety testing space. So we're looking for E. coli, salmonella, listeria, all the big outbreaks you hear about, like Chipotle, things like that, <laughs> that make people sick. So there's a big market there. People become more aware of the problems in the food chain. And so the way it works now, most companies box up, like take a sample in, the, in their food production facility. They'll stick it in a box, UPS it to a third-party testing lab. And so then they have to grow it overnight and do some tests. And that could take three to five days before they can get their results. So what we're trying to do is do food safety testing at the point of need. So we have some technology to put a device in the facility so they can get the results in one hour and they don't have to waste all that time and you know 
hopefully prevent some of these outbreaks that are happening due to these long wait times for tests. Do you mind if I jump in a little bit? Go ahead, I, Sarah. I was talking about um, this really interesting use of detecting pathogens and and also talking about big data. It's something we're really interested in, especially using biological crop protection products. As you can imagine, they're very different from conventional crop protection products, and we have challenges with telling our growers how to use them. For example, they often have to be used under preventative conditions, and growers will ask us, well, when, when do I know? When I, I don't know when a pathogen's gonna come into my, my uh, field or my plantation or wherever we happen to be. And so if we could have some sort of indicator as to a pathogen arrival, this would greatly enable uses of biological crop protection products um, and our ability to know when to actually use them. And then since we are measuring things beyond efficacy, we're measuring things like plant health and plant response, some of these big data technologies will really enable us to capture all of the minute you know, nutrient increases that we see in crops um, uh, upon using these, these uh, products. So it's, it's interesting to hear how all of these different ag agricultural technologies really at the end of the day link together. So Jeremy and Sarah, are you going to exchange business cards at the end of this? Absolutely. Maybe it's partnership. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then Joe, for you, I mean, it sounds like this is, with Venture Catalyst, something that you're working on, uh, getting research out of the lab into viable products and services, helping people like S Jeremy turn from students into entrepreneurs. So I was going to ask, is this, you know, what Dave, what Venture Catalyst's role is, I guess what UC Davis wants to do with uh, what is going on inside its labs. Yeah, so um, yeah, ve what Venture Catalyst wants to do is we want to help startups get started. So we have, uh, we're within the Office of Research uh, at UC Davis, and within that group we fall under TMCR, which is a Technology Management and Corporate Relations. And there are three units in there, which is uh, one is Innovation Access, which is basically the tech transfer group. It manages all the intellectual property and does the licenses out of uh, the university, the technology. And then the Office of Corporate Relations, which manages uh, relationships with corporate entities. And then the Venture Catalyst Group, what we do is we help companies get started. And Jeremy can talk about his experience. He was, you were probably pretty early in this. Yeah, very early. But we set up a, uh, we have a series, we have a suite of services that we call START. And this is the, uh, the Smart Toolkit for Accelerated Research Translation. And within that, we have a legal net. So we have six or seven legal partners, law firms, that will help companies get incorporated at no cost. So if you're a, C, if you're a UCD um, employee or staff, alumni, or if you're associated with somebody, uh, like they're on your board or uh, your advisory board or regular board, then you have access to these services and they're all free of charge. And so the law firms will do a fine, finite amount of business um, for you for free. And they'll incorporate your company. They'll help you get your cap table together, your bylaws, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, you, can, can, you can decide whether to work with them going forward or not. So it's, there's no obligation. We also have a mentor net. We have about 30 mentors that uh, specialize in different areas. And we can connect you with a mentor that will help you go through your business model and figure it out what makes sense um, and just help you generally. Uh, we have uh, what we call a micro report, which is a market intelligent uh, competitive analysis report. So we'll do a high level analysis of your market because it's really important 
Jeremy can attest to this too. And you go out to try to raise money, you have to know exactly, you know, what you're up against, and and um, you know how to quantify what you know your business may be and what kind of money and what kind of return you may get. Uh, and then we also do SBIR and SDTR workshops, and these are small business innovation research and small business technology transfer. Uh, the acronyms are just I don't know. The, the, the two programs, these are, uh, this is funding, non-dilutive funding uh, for uh, early stage technologies out of about seven to 11 a agencies, uh, National Institute of Health, National Science Foundation, and they're in phases. Phase one's $150,000, phase two is somewhere between 750 and a million or so, and uh, so we help people write those grants. We give workshops. Um, to do that and then we work very closely with the uh with uh, mike and renee um child family institute for innovation and entrepreneurship at, at, which is housed within the graduate school of management they do a, a uh, entrepreneurship academy uh three times a year one on ag one general and one on uh, basically biomed um and we also have uh a drive program so we've we've been very fortunate to have uh, hm close which jeremy mentioned uh, Area 52, uh, we're starting a new incubator up at uh, at the School of Medicine in Sacramento. Um, and this allows space at pretty inexpensive rates, so you can have a real address, have access to shared facilities. Um, in the case of HM Close, it's life sciences, what I like to saw anything wet and squishy. You know, you do there, and Area 52 is more of the engineering and, and uh, kind of hard sciences things, and there's maker space and community space. And so we provide all these services to, if you're associated with UC Davis, we provide all these uh, for free, and our goal is just to help companies get started. How many companies have you helped get started so far, or is there like a goal, an annual goal going forward of how many? Yeah, so uh, just a little disclaimer. I've been with uh, I've been with the group about six months. Um, so, but last year was thirteen startups, and it's very interesting. So, obviously, most universities run on government sponsorship, so that we get they, they write proposals. The government sponsors it. It's very fundamental technology, which is frankly why the U.S. is where it is because we need that basic science, and and it evolves into something that nobody you know nobody really expected at all but regardless where you're at and regardless what kind of funding level you get which by the way uc davis now has got more money uh in funding from than uc berkeley and uh, uc san diego so uh that's that's quite an accomplishment um but regardless how much money you get it translates into so many companies but we're trying to accelerate that a little bit i don't personally believe you can create an entrepreneur but i think you can nudge them along a little bit and so last year, I think there were 13. We, and so there's what we call the UC Davis, uh, or uh, I'm sorry, a um, uh, UC Davis, yeah, sorry, UC Davis startup and then an affiliated startup. So if it's based on fun, uh, foundational IP from UC Davis, we call it a UC Davis startup. If it's, if it's, a, it's an alum or whatever, it's an affiliated startup. So those two categories were 12 or 13 last year, which is pretty, which is a little bit above the national, national average. So our target, obviously, is you... You know, you, 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 I love the expression that if you torture the numbers long enough, they'll say anything you want. So we could create 100 startups next year. We really could. But what we want to do is we want to create quality startups, right? So I think that number is going to normalize, even though we'd like to see it go up. There's, all much, there's only so much you can do. And there's only so many ideas. And, and so it's, it's that number, I think, is probably until the research funding goes up, it's probably going to stay about 12 or 13 a year. Okay. So I had a question about where uh, Yolo County, so Davis, Woodland, Winters, West Sac, uh, um, 
and other towns in Yolo County. Where is it now in, I guess, in a scale of, you know, zero or, you know, just started to 10 where it's just like, Silicon Valley in terms of ag tech because I know there's other hubs there's St. Louis right there's Research Triangle in in North Carolina um, obviously global areas where does the Yolo County area stand in terms of um, prominence in terms of promise uh, have we just started are we there yet I was just curious about I think a lot of people in in the general area don't really know much they know about UC Davis and Maybe they've heard about Monsanto, but they may not realize what is happening here. So w what is happening here and where is it along the growth spectrum? So I think if you go with prominence first and uh, potential, uh, this area has, has got it all. I mean, UC Davis is world renowned for its work in agriculture, and but it really hasn't gotten, I think, the credit it deserves. And I think that's what we're all doing right here is to, is to bring that, you know, credit to the university. So. It's hard to answer that question um, unless in an abstract way. Um, I think that it's, it feels to me, so I, I spent 35 years in the Bay Area. I just moved up here a few years ago, and so I saw the high tech, and this is the third university I worked for, so one was Stanford, and I used to say it was high tech biotech. The other was USC, it was high tech biotech and Hollywood, and here it's high tech biotech and ag and food, right? And so, and I think that component, it's gotten very, it's getting hot. I, I, I really think it is. So. I think it's at its early stages, and I, you know, so I'm a rookie here, so I, I, I look to the other panelists to, to, to chime in here and, and give some input, but I think it's poised. One of the reasons I moved here is because I think it's poised to really... Um, it's on the brink. Yes, it's on the brink. What do you guys think? I, I could give some input just in terms of one of the reasoning why we moved from Davis to, to West Sacramento. It's all in Yolo County, but it was... Um, Really working with the local government officials in, in the West Sacramento area really enabled the, the process to be able to have, have our building be there. We promoted jobs in the region, and so just being able to connect to that community and have that close connection really helped, helped our growth in that area and kind of less, yeah. In terms of prominence, I think we're a one. In terms of potential, I think we're an 11 out of 10. I think that this region has all of the right ingredients to make something spectacular happen. I think it is on the verge of being poised, but not quite there. I think that there are some long-standing foundational elements like AgStart, like UC Davis that are here. Um, I think that uh, we do not have a problem with innovation. We actually have a problem with investment. So when you think about the ingredients that make uh, make us able to actualize our potential, innovation, we're there. The money, hopefully, will soon follow. I was also going to, oh, I'm sorry, Jeremy, I your just thoughts. wanted to add on to yeah. that. I agree. Like, when we finished the Indian Bible program, we had a choice to make whether we could stay in the Bay Area and set up shop there or come out here. And one of the reasons we came out here was because of the, the amount of talent that's coming out of the university, and specifically in what we're doing. And so the, the one thing that, you know, is sort of, in the back of our mind is in order to make a lot of these contacts with investors, we have to you know, agree to go to San Francisco like at least once a week or once every other week to, to have these meetings and to make these good contacts. And so I think, I think slowly it's changing here. There's some angel investors in Sacramento. There's some other groups that are kind of coming on the scene, but it's, it's something that's kind of lagging behind our potential is to be in a hub for ag tech. 
<laughs> no, so that I want to build on that comment if I could. So that yeah, you have to go that direction, but they're eventually going to come this direction. And because of you, we have to see the successes and we have to see things happen. We joke that there's uh, the, the you know the Sandhill venture capitalists that capitalists will not come over a bridge because it's too far away. You know, and we're and we're cursed because we're actually kind of close, but just far enough away that it makes it problematic. But um, there'll be opportunity here, and as they see some successes. Uh, they will they will cross the bridge to come over to come over here. And I would I would add to that one of the reasons they're going to cross is because folks we got the farms over here. If you want to be an ag tech, you need to be surrounded by agriculture. That's just all there is to it. And these startups that are developing new technologies, I'm going to say something that will shock absolutely no one. And I've seen this over and over again. Is frequently somebody who's really strong in technology will come up with a brilliant ag tech solution, but will be really weak in agriculture and lack the access to beta test it, to meet farmers, to get that real world market experience with actual on the boots, boots on the ground agriculture. And so as product development happens, Joe's absolutely right, the money will follow. And if they wanna be in ag tech, then they need to be with agriculture. That leads us to the next question, which was targeted for you, Christy, the farmers here, uh, farmers, ranchers, the local ag-based companies, are they on are they on board um because i i i i hear some you know some people are set in their ways you know they did, did things you know they've done it for generations in their family how about here in yellow county are farmers willing to try new techniques be beta testers do you need to do some convincing a mix of all those what do you what are you seeing and and how do you as a farmer you know try out these innovations these gizmos so the question you're asking is how does an innovation become diffused within a given population? And in this case, agriculture. And just as a side note for the geeks in the audience like me, um, when you take a look at real deep diffusion studies, uh, the godfather Everett Rogers of the diffusion of innovation studies was actually an agricultural econo economist who studied out of the Midwest. And he discovered, um, he was able to break down this bell curve of adoption and how it happens across a community, specifically an ag community, over time. There's a couple of things that, that I think people don't quite realize about the nuances of either this bell curve of adoption or the nuances of an agricultural community. And the first thing that you have to realize is that it absolutely is a community. When folks are out there talking about a product, like a salesperson is out there pitching a product to a farmer, they're not pitching to one person, they're pitching to an entire community together. The community accepts or rejects a product almost en masse, and it happens um, through these stages of, of innovators and early adopters and early majority and late majority. And what people also don't realize about this bell curve of adoption is that each one of those audiences is adopting at a different time for a different reason because they hear a different message. It's very, very useful to uh, understand the overlap of certain cultural hallmarks within agriculture um, and to be respectful of those uh, when you're going out and you know selling for selling to farmers for lack of a better for, of a better word um, 
I've, I've seen this a lot where, where somebody will come out and say, gee whiz, I got this fantastic gizmo and you should try it. And the farmer says, great, fantastic, here's some lemonade, thanks very much. And they never make it past the porch. They never make it back into the house because the groundwork within the culture has not been laid. The relationships have not been built. You're dealing with a, a, a community that is often slow to adopt um, and that relies on the communication amongst one another. One of the best marketing strategies I ever saw was a company called Beck Ag who goes out and they actually hire farmers who are using specific products and actually Bear uses them. Um, and they go out and they, they have farmers test or use specific products year after year after year. And by year three, those farmers who are testing for them, they give them a, a, a phone list. And these, these farmers who have been the testers now become the evangelists. And they do it, believe it or not, for free because that is how the culture of the community has done it over time through those relationships, through that free communication. And those are some key hallmarks that, that we have to realize about the adoption strategies for deploying new innovations in agriculture. Is, is Beck Ag local? Are they a local company? Are they out of county? Or? They have, I think, three offices placed, dispersed throughout the nation. Because I was wondering if there was like the local connection. Hey, I'm your fellow Yolo County resident, if that makes an impact on on farmer, farmers. Absolutely, and who is communicating makes all the difference in the world. If you have, you know, a, a farmer who's uh, proven time and again to be a, a stalwart, stand-up person in the community, um, then chances are very high that they're going to have a strong network that can be leveraged for diffusion. And um, so, getting back to the the behemoth of Yolo County, UC Davis, such a big name. And uh, Joe, you were talking about what uh, Venture Catalyst is doing. I was wondering, just in general, UC Davis's role in making this an AgTap hub, um, are there areas it, it's really focused on in terms of, like, for example, um, looking at, you know, besides seed and crops, uh, are they looking at expanding into? Um, livestock, or um, I guess I'm just wondering what what are th what are they rolling out in terms of what is possible, and are there for all the panelists are there areas where UC Davis could be doing more in terms of partnering with the private sector, or you know getting more help? Just you know UC Davis's role, what's going on, and what could be done more of. Uh, well, there always could be more done, but I think, um, you know, what's been going on at UC Davis in terms of agriculture has, has been going on forever. And again, it's a, it's a little bit about getting re some recognition for that and trying to get it out into the commercial world. So I'm again, disclaimer, been here six months. I am just getting my head wrapped around what's going on here and I am overwhelmed. I'm just literally overwhelmed with what I see going on at UC Davis in all aspects. Everything from, you know, vertical farming and growing plants with LED and capturing carbon to help plants grow faster, you know, and it's it's uh it's been it's been pretty amazing for me. So unfortunately, I don't really feel like I can answer that with any with any authority uh except to say that this is a core competency of UC Davis and uh I'm just really excited to see what's going to what I'm going to see in the next 6 months being here. Please, somebody help me. Well, yeah, Sarah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, um, 
as you can imagine, developing biological crop protection products is no simple task. You're dealing with a biological system, let's say the beneficial microbe in that case, and then you're dealing with another biological system, which could be the plant, and then you're dealing with abiotic stresses like drought or salt or whatever the soil conditions that you're dealing with, and then whatever pathogens or insects decide to come attack the crops. And so it's this incredibly complex um, system that you're trying to mitigate and, and help a, a grower at the end of the day. Um, talking specifically with, I focus a lot of my effort on soil microbiology and understanding uh, beneficial root colonization by microbes and the growth promotion or the the beneficial interaction that these microbes have with plants and so really and we can't do it all we have lots of collaborations all around the world uh, as as Bayer and it just depends on the specialty of the the research institute or the uh, the university that we're partnering with um, and what our, our questions are to advance our understanding. So we have collaborations here at UC Davis. We have collaborations in Australia. We were talking earlier. We have collaborations in Chile. And so it just depends on the type of, of research. But getting into some of these innovative fields is definitely going to require thinking outside the box, outside the building. So because you are in the same county as UC Davis, do you have uh, an ongoing relationship, like you personally or your team, um, meeting with uh, people at UC Davis, as, uh, does Bayer actively or does UC Davis actively Yes, absolutely. Meet up? Okay. For example, I'm, I'm an alumni of UC Davis. Okay. I have a Bachelor's of Arts in Spanish, and I do a lot wow. of training in Latin America, and then I have a Bachelor's of Science in Biology specializing in plant sciences. Um, and then I also have a master's degree in, in biochemistry from Sacramento State. So I have a lot of local connections. That's just me personally. We have um, just under 200 people at our site. A lot of them are UC Davis graduates. And so we not only have that connection from the professional advancement level, I guess I would say, but also in terms of, of looking at what particular research is, is being done at UC Davis and entering into collaborations for that. You know, you're really right to ask this question about the porous membrane between um, a university research facility and uh, sort of the larger world and how it gets deployed. So I'll tell you the creation story of AgStart. AgStart was started about four years ago as a result of a joint grant executed between UC Davis and the Graduate School of Management, uh, specifically the Mike and Renee Childs Innovation Institute for... No, sorry, it's just Innovation Institute. It's a tough one, yeah. It's, just, <laughs> it's, it's the Institute. It's the Institute. That makes it sound like a mental hospital. <laughs> just kidding. Um, <laughs> I love those Sorry, people. anyone here from child? <laughs> I, no, they, we, are, we are dear friends, dear friends. Um, so, so the creation story of Eggstart is that we, did, we executed a joint grant from the uh, Economic Development Administration, which is a division of the Department of, Cha of Commerce, um, at the federal level. And so we got this money um, that was a joint grant between UC Davis and SARTA, if anybody remembers the SAC Regional Tech Alliance um, and SARTA. And out of that, the AgStart program was born because they recognized there was great research and great innovation happening at the university in the ag tech level, but it wasn't necessarily getting translated to the real world or it didn't have a home, a welcoming home to just, you know, try some things out before, before trying your, to 
spread your wings as a larger company. Um, so that was the purpose and, and the creation of AgStart is to make that jump from the university into the real world. So I'm going to give the heads up for anyone who has a question. Uh, I have a few more, but I think you guys will have a bunch. The mic again is here in the middle of these, these chairs. Um, so I know from just the past four events, there's, I always ask a couple more questions and then finally there's an icebreaker person who comes up and asks a question and then the dam is broken. So yeah, that'll be me. That'll be you, okay, or yeah, some other icebreaker. Please feel free. But uh, so once someone starts at the mic, I'm gonna I'm gonna hand it over to you. But I I did want to tie into Christie's um, comment here because I was gonna ask about the the local government's role, the city of Davis, uh, the county, because you work with Yolo County. What is they? What are they doing? What are their efforts? How do they? Um, help or, or lend their assistance, um, you know, and how does it work on a county and city level here? I, I would say that all the municipalities are incredibly um, supportive of any innovation coming here from outside the county or innovation, any innovation being grown here. Um, this, is, this is why we've begun to host incubators and accelerators like AgStart and others. Um, I would say that uh, up until maybe a year ago, the municipalities had this attitude of, welcome, we're so glad you're here, um, but we're not really sure what you are. So there's just a little bit of learning that's happening on both sides. Um, I will say this, in terms of the investment pipeline, there are some things that municipalities and government entities like the county can undertake to funnel grant large grant monies through their structures and award either grants or low interest loans to start up in early stage companies. And right now, uh, I would say each of the municipalities and the county at large are looking at this but are not really um, engaged, which, which is kind of a sad picture, um, quite honestly, for Yolo County. When you look at a map of the surrounding counties of Yolo County and, and you just sort of follow the money and look at how, you know, Calusa and Napa and Lake and Placer and Sacramento have taken advantage of these federal grants in the past and Yolo County has not, it's, uh, it's quite of astonishing that, that we're the island that just didn't really quite have it together yet. But I would say that that's changing. I would say that that's changing. So be on, be on the lookout for accelerator funds and new financing structures to come out and support startups and early stage companies here. Yeah, I'd like to comment, expand on that. I mean, that's really one of the hard parts about getting started as a company is, you know, having a space that's affordable um, to work in while you find, you know, market product fit for what you're doing. And um, I think it's it, the municipalities kind of need to step up and get some spaces going that, that these young entrepreneurs can come into and start their companies. And then you can start creating the culture of entrepreneurship in the county. Really helpful. Do we have an icebreaker question here? All right, step right up. Hi. Thank uh, you. Yeah, I was, is this on, is, you guys can, yeah. So I'm, yeah, you guys, yeah, yeah I, I can hear me hearing you. Uh, yeah, uh, so I guess my question ultimately is, do you feel like, do you feel like our eat local, drink local, be local mentality is hurting 
our county as a whole or do you feel like it's creating a draw for places i know you guys mentioned that you had to go out to san francisco do you feel like us being local is making a mentality where we want people from out of here to come here or do you feel like it's insulating us and keeping us from expanding and combating the challenges that are the north carolina research triangle or st louis or anywhere else so that, that's a great question and um so it's interesting to see how you know in, in the in the bay area you've got the sand hill road where all the investors are and they're all hunkered down there and it's and, you know, when you think about a lot of particular products i um I think about the music industry and keyboard manufacturers, uh, Korg, Yamaha, Roland, uh, two others are located within 10 miles of each other in Japan. So that's kind of what happened in Sand Hill Road. Uh, I don't think it's bad necessarily. I, so I, I joked about the VCs not wanting to come over the bridge. They, do, they don't like to travel more than about 25 miles or so. It's just convenient. But if they have opportunity, they will come. So I think it will happen. And then and, and, uh, uh, so I don't really think it's a negative necessarily. I think it's maybe, you know, a characteristic that in the long term is going to be positive. Um, it's not like we're excluding uh, we just want to get it more local, and I think as the opportunity opportunities present themselves, and there's some successes here, that it's just going to happen on its own. So, I guess answering kind of from a, a different perspective as well, I don't think the the eat the eat local, think local, act local movement is harming our area in any way. I mean, California agriculture. I, they say if you took California agriculture, it could be like the fifth largest country in the world or something. It's it's amazing. I think we really need to take advantage and celebrate the agriculture that we have here in California. And um, in terms of advancing, you know, the understanding of people being able to see where their food comes from and ask questions and have have panels like this and have the ability to talk face to face. I think it's a huge opportunity that we should we should uh, uh, go for and continue to do. Oh, sorry. Oh, and I'll just make a quick comment. Like on the entrepreneurial side, there's not really this like enclave of locals only sort of thing. There was a couple of companies that came out uh, with us to Davis after the accelerator program, and I think um, that's a little different. It's kind of more you know collaboration in that point anyway. So here's what's interesting about the um, the farm to fork, farm to everything movement. Uh, Yolo County, well, let me put it into context for you. In the nine county region in Sacramento, we do an agricultural output of about two-ish billion dollars. Yolo County does about just shy of 900 million of that 200 billion dollars. So the other, which means that the other eight counties combined do the other half. So when a few years ago when Sacramento announced that it was the farm to fork capital of the world, of the nation, Yellow County, we just sort of looked and said, huh, isn't that interesting? Because <laughs> we're, we're the farm part of the, the farm to the fork. We're the farm farm part. Um, so that was that was an interesting that was an interesting moment to us. And whether or not it helps our innovation system, our innovation ecosystem, absolutely, absolutely. If for no other reason than it raises our level of civic pride in something, and as Farm to Fork raises the flag and says over here, over here, then it's absolutely going to bring everything else that we want besides people who just want to eat. Okay, next question. 
Hey, um, so I, I'm asking this question as a, a current uh, Davis grad student, um, mainly um, for you, uh, Joe, maybe for you as well, Jeremy. <clears throat> um, but uh, so I'm wondering with, you know, um, companies that come um, from this academic setting, um, what uh, what degree of involvement uh, the, the founders tend to keep, um, you know, if, if the, the company ends up being successful, it, you know, if it's started by um, someone who's a, ten, a tenured academic or, or, you know, graduate students or postdocs, um, do they tend to, you know, you know, spin off and, and, and follow that company or, you know, kind of keep their job at Davis and um, kind of stay in an advisory role? So what's kind of the trend? Uh, so great question. Uh, the reality is that uh, most professors and researchers love what they do, right? And what they want to do is they want to research. And if you're going to be involved in a startup, you're going to have to throw your life into it. And I'll throw you know, that one to Jeremy. And uh, a lot of these f uh, faculty and professors have tenured pos positions. It's a it's a job for life. It's a it's a sandbox. You get to kind of do what you you know want to do, fundamental research and everything. So they're allowed to consult. Uh, most as with most universities, about twenty percent of the time. So about one day a week, they can consult with the company. So it's fine if they take a leave of absence and start the company. But most of them are not going to give up that day job. And so at the three universities I've worked at, I've seen that happen once or twice, where the faculty actually left their tenure position position to be involved so it's about the graduate students it's about the postdocs it's uh, those are the guys that are going to make this happen so uh, you know you want them on the advisory board yeah you could, you know, the faculty i'm talking about you, you know that's good that happens frequently that they'll be on some kind of an advisory board capacity uh but they have to let go which is sometimes part of the problem uh, i've seen f faculty members that want 51 percent of the company because they think they'll control it for one day a week you know, and it, it'll never get funded. So we really do, we kind of looked at the postdocs and the graduate students for, as the ones that are going to take the company and do, and, and, and do the seven, you know, 24, seven or whatever, <laughs> seven days a week for, yeah, all day is, yeah, what I'm trying to say. Uh, so it's, it's, it's actually more unusual that a faculty member would go full-time to the company. It's going to be more up to the, to the graduate students to, to make it happen. Yeah, what, what Joe's saying exactly right. And so I can talk about our company. Um, since this was a grant that was on campus beforehand, we actually have quite a few professors on our advisory board. And so they're all founders in the company, but they've taken on an advisory role. So their role is to work for the company about eight hours a month to get their stake in the company. And so um, the people who get the majority of the company, and this is, this is because if you want to raise venture capital money, the people who are active in the day-to-day -day business with the company need to be the majority stockholders in that company. And so if you come out and you have a company, and the first question, if, if you say we have some you know, professor founders is, they're going to ask you who has the majority of the company because this happens actually quite a lot or used to happen a lot. And so once the power's outside the company, then it's really hard for investors to you know, help you build a business and for you to do anything that you need to do as far as building a business so but on the on the other side having those university advisors on your advisory board is huge they're big names they can provide a lot of input they you know give some credence to what your company's about and basically that you have the knowledge and the capacity to to do and accomplish what you're setting out to do and i had a question connected to that because i i know uh jeremy you and your co-founder mark commuted to San Francisco every day for how many months? So it was four and a half months. Four and a half months to uh, to be an indie bio, so a, a, a accelerator or an incubator. Yeah, it's a biotech accelerator. So they give you funding 
for a percentage of your company, and they provide uh, mentorship for businesses. And they really have a great like network of you know partnerships like with a lot of companies in the area and nationwide, worldwide even. So is that a necessary thing to do that still for companies that are here to to go into the Bay Area, make connections? I mean, would you do it still? Is it something that you I, know, I would do, do it? I actually hadn't heard of AgStart when we started, but um, there there are a lot of ag-specific companies, and as far as some like for us in the ag space, a lot of investors that come through there are like biotech, health, big pharma, things like that. So they're not we're not their first target for a lot of things, and so maybe going to an ag tech investment thing would have been better. But on the flip side of that, we did make a lot of contacts, and the companies were in part talks to make partnerships with and become customers. We met there, and so just having. Having a place where you can get contacts, grow your network, introduce investors that are interested in what you're doing is very important. And I think you know UC Davis and Xstart are beginning the foundations of that for sure. Yes, I'm going to build on that a little bit. So, uh, and and I'm sure you're concurring. As a startup, you need to do whatever it is you need to do. And right now, that might be you have to go down to the Bay Area, but eventually, that's what we're trying to do, create, recreate here, so you don't have to do that because it's. Time is very, very important, and commuting, especially in this area, <laughs> can be a complete nightmare. So, um, yeah, I think that'll change over time. Uh, that's what we're trying to do with the accelerators and incubators in this area. You know, Joe, you made a really interesting comment earlier about entrepreneurs being born, not made. Um, and I, I would concur with that. And the, the point that you were making about professors being really attracted to continuing research as opposed to running a companies, I would say quite honestly um, that some of the things that I've seen in ag tech really echo that. And there are times when I wish that I had a stable of ready and waiting entrepreneurs that I could match make with a company that had really fantastic tech to take it to the next level. Because you can see that those individual researchers, those folks who had the fantastic idea just aren't quite gonna make the jump to the next level no yeah they've been wired from birth insatiable desire for recognition you know we, we, we set it up frankly in the in the academic environment you have to publish or perish you know you do patents and whatever whatever and it's all about you and you keep it all to yourself and all that stuff so we kind of create the beast but that's okay because we need these people as I said earlier that I think America's in the position it is is because we have all this um, uh, fundamental research going on at universities we give people a sandbox you don't know what's going to come out of that you, you give them try to you know go down this commercial path and they they find it they're disinterested they just they just won't do it so so i think the system works it's just that we have to get the right people they're willing to the people that are willing to risk everything to make it happen and you know frankly some come somebody came to me and said here's a decent salary for the rest of your life and you can kind of do whatever you want i don't know it's a hard gig you know to give up sounds kind of boring joe <laughs> For you, that's why you are the dude, man. So I just wanted to, before we go to the next question for, for the podcast, we're outside and there's train and fire engines. So just if you hear all that noise in the background, that's what it is. All right, next up. Thank you. Just want to say thank you, panel, for coming out here and spreading your knowledge. Well, I think we all appreciate that very much. Uh, so my question is sort of predicated on a 2012 report released uh, by the UN on agriculture. Uh, and they sort of forcefully suggested that insects become highly considered for a new viable food source. Um, I know that there are a few startups around the country focusing on uh, insects for uh, new levels of nutrition, specifically with protein and amino acids. 
And I was wondering, with your knowledge, I'm not sure if it's outside the scope of what you do, but what you know or have heard about what's going on uh, specifically with insects for food. Thank you. Yeah, so I don't. this was a long time ago, 10 or 15, 20 years ago. Maybe I read somewhere that we're like we're the only country in the world that doesn't really eat insects. So they're full of protein. So when, the, you know, one lands on your food, you just kind of eat it and everything. So, yeah, I, maybe. I don't know. It's, uh, it's a cultural kind of thing. Um, but, you know, back to what kind of technology is going on at uh, UC Davis, there's some work now on the insect that eats plastic and then passes protein. I mean, so how cool is that? Um, so I think that might be a better application for insects. I don't want to eat any necessarily, but uh, yeah, I mean, it could be a, a good source of protein. Yeah, I've, I've, I've been to a few conferences and I've heard some um, p people pitch on this. And I think the direction is sort of going for the cricket feed and stuff is actual feed for animals is kind of the bigger market and what more people are just because of the ick factor and the United States is a little too high for people <laughs> it turns out you know we actually had more than one of these cricket companies landing here uh, last year um, however true story it was discovered that there is some and I'm going to be out of my depth very quickly here. There is some um, bacteria that attacks the crickets, like digestive system or something like that. Um, and they were worried that the crickets were essentially going to starve to death if they started up here. So they moved to other parts of the country. That's interesting because I was just reading the Sacramento Business Journal today. And one of those companies, Crutchfield Farms, is that the appropriate name? correct name uh, Crutchfield just announced they're going to have a, a big research lab in North Carolina so it sounded like they were expanding but I don't know if they're moving or just growing big but they made a big deal out of that so and I think what they're a lot of what they're doing is just getting the, the protein so they're taking the grinding them as opposed to just eating like gross looking crickets they're like processing it to provide general like protein to add to products like you know instead of like vegetable proteins or uh, meat protein by products it's just cheaper next question thank you all for being here um i want to kind of direct back to public policy administration that's my area of interest um so you've talked about some things i hear you talk about things that we can do for uh startups and incubators sort of leveraging funding and and that sort of thing but what about the next step like jeremy your company is based here sarah your company left here davis i mean you're still in yellow county but what can we do from a public policy perspective to keep the, you guys here and and not move to north carolina or even across the causeway thanks I guess from, from our standpoint, it might have been less, well, I'm not going to say that it wasn't a part to do with it, but it was more about the timing and the ability to be able to quickly move into something that was already existing for us to renovate. Um, we we had a team, and I wasn't part of that that side of the team, but we had a team really evaluating options to stay here in Davis. I think we had taken up they were like modified office buildings over here and i think we had like five of them or something it was getting ridiculous in terms of walking back and forth and i think we had evaluated opportunities to look to build a building um, from the ground up but just on the timing front it it didn't make sense in terms of what we needed to be doing uh yesterday um and and 
that was that was a hard decision. That uh, is what I hear the the executives of our site had to make because we have lots of people that still live here in Davis, so their families and their their homes are here. You know, they have to com commute. 15 minutes. I live in North Sacramento. I was kind of happy about the move, but on it, I, I still rode my bicycle. I used to drive all the way to North Davis, park my car, and ride my bicycle to work just to get exercise. So I loved being here in Davis as well. But from what I hear from um, the Yolo County side in West Sacramento was the, the mayor of West Sacramento, Chris Cabaldone. He was very involved um, other other entities in the municipality were really involved in in speeding up the process. So not only maybe on the actual physical building process, but speeding up some of the paperwork. And that's again a disclaimer. I'm not. I wasn't part of that team, but this is what I hear. Sure. Okay. Okay. Uh, no, I I did have a question that that probably both or. Uh, all of you can can give your thoughts on about Bayer buying Monsanto. And I did read an article again in the Business Journal about what effect that will have here regionally in terms of consolidation or you know combining departments or maybe focusing on one product over another. So what do you, I don't know when this deal is officially supposed to happen, but what do you predict or what do you see happening already? Sure. And I guess that's my, my cue to jump in, right? No. <laughs> Starting with Sarah, yes. I'm just teasing. <laughs> but so to be very upfront, I know as much as you do in the news. Um, it's deals like this are incredibly sensitive. So I don't know. I think Jim was saying sometimes the employees lo know less than even <laughs> are is in the media. But in terms of what we do specifically at our site in West Sacramento, we're developing biological crop protection and enhancing products. One of the reasons that Bayer bought Monsanto is because the two companies are very complementary. So in terms of how that would affect our operations in West Sacramento, I mean, I can only speak from what I know of what we do in terms of biological crop protection products, though that's our strength. Whereas some of the seeds and different things that are based out of St. Louis, that's Monsanto's strength. And so we're really combining the two different areas of the company without much overlap. And so um, I, I hope to be working in West Sacramento, working on biological products for the next, however long they'll let me work there for, so. <laughs> I wanted to go go back to your public policy question. Um, so as I think everybody's heard, we have a lot of the right ingredients here to be, I mean, truly spectacular in this, in this field, uh, no pun intended. Um, I would say first and foremost what we lack is cohesive messaging where we have a lot of the right stuff we don't always communicate it well we don't always let folks know that we're actually here or that we're actually doing stuff or that anything is is possible up here so um, I would say first and foremost is cohesive messaging and then the second thing I would say is taking advantage of as much federal funding as we possibly can and have not to date um, and I mean, I say this uh, gently, but shame on us. I mean, we, we could have and, and we, sh we should do a better job of that. Um, so I would say cohesive messaging, funding for sure. And then I would say to encourage more entrepreneurialism, 
um, or to help those very early stage company uh, at various municipality levels, there it is possible to waive fees. It is possible to have um, your building department fees waived or deferred. It is possible for your uh, income taxes to be waived or deferred for that first year, that second year, just to give them that little extra boost so that they make it to that to that next year. So, as a policy level, um, I would say promoting promoting those three things would would get us would get us a lot farther. Next question. Um, so thank you for being here tonight. This was fascinating. It's not my area at all, um, but I've learned a ton. So my first question is for uh, Jeremy and Joe. Do I get the names right? Um, so as a UC Davis faculty, I know that when I apply for an NSF grant um, or when I receive one, the overhead cost is 53%. That's what the university gets off the top. 57. 57. Ah, nice. Um, so with these... Um, with the venture catalyst, what? How does the university? What's the model for the university making money off of it? That sounds cynical, but I'm just curious. Oh, the model for them making money. So, so here's the reality: if you, I mean, corporations when they sponsor research at universities, they they complain about the 50% overhead, 57% overhead, and actually, by the way, that's relatively low compared to some other universities. Others are as high as you know, upper 60s and 62. I think is the average. So. UC is not so bad, uh, but the reality is the corporation's overhead, if they really run it with between their benefits and their amortization and all that, is, is probably in about the same category. And what you need to keep in mind is the access to facilities that you'll have for that 52%. I mean, you can't set this up in, a, in an incubator. Sp uh, some of the facilities you might get at a university, uh, you can't set that up cheaply. I mean, it's outrageously expensive. So in terms of uh, getting more government sponsorship and SBIRs or SDTRs, um, that overhead is is marginal. If you really run the numbers to figure if you had to buy all this equipment to do the same research, um, it would cost you a lot more than that. So, you know, universities are nonprofit. They're not really trying to make money. They're trying to sustain themselves. And frankly, um, for w whatever, uh, I didn't want to say unfortunately, but it's spread across the university. So, so the the money that's coming in for all the grants and the sciences is going to you know humanities and sciences and letters and arts to support the university broadly and generally. So, um, yeah, I did that kind of address your? Yeah, no, no, this is very good. I just wanted to make sure that the university is not losing money by supporting like that. This is not you know being done on the backs of students or anything. Yeah, so um, part of the, the program is that you're using li uh, UC Davis patents and licensed technologies from UC Davis. So part of the hopes with starting the company is, is that UC Davis will be putting these patents that are normally just sitting out waiting in front of the company to buy up and actually put it into, you know, alumni's hand and the university's hand to make sure that science is getting done with them and they can obviously get licensing fees off of these patents as well. Yeah. So to that point, um, the by law, uh, the majority of any royalties that come from patent licensing out of the university go back to research and development. We share it with the uh, faculty members who, again, they have their tenure position, blah, blah, but they don't have stock options, right? They're not working for companies. They, their upside is kind of limited. So that's a way to keep them involved because going through the patent process is complicated. It's long. It takes a lot of time. It's painful, frankly. And so that's kind of the way for them to share a little bit. So, um, yeah, I mean, what we're doing, it's, it's a big cycle of innovation. So government sponsors research, 
uh, fundamental technology comes out, gets licensed to industry, industry sells a product, they pay royalties to the university. By law, that has to go back into research and development. So in theory, and I've seen I've seen departments endowed by just a royalty flow back into certain, you know. So most universities give a third back to the department in which the invention was invented, a third back to the school, and then a third to the inventors after expenses. So it's not like they're really profiting. They're leveraging your tax dollars is what is what they're doing. Hey, you want to talk about that uh, bill that Ryan's working on? Okay, tell me about it. You know the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you know more than I do about that. See, we're fighting like an old married couple. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, what is no, this 20, bill? 2664. So there's, uh, yeah, yeah. Because she was just referring to a bill in which the University of California, each each school, I guess, is getting like a couple million dollars, uh, and yeah, they get grant. Oh, so yeah, I, I'm. They have to right. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a a long, complicated story, and I, I'm I'm just not really feeling comfortable talking about it. It's a good thing, basically, the universities. So this is all about innovation and supporting it. Uh, but it happened pretty quickly, and no one was sure it was going to happen, and then it did, and now we have to figure out what we're going to do with, with this money, and 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 comply with all the uh, with all the regulations. So, I'm sorry, I have to apologize, but I just it's not you know. Sorry, I leave Jeff. it up to Ryan, yeah, my colleague. Yeah, let's call Ryan. For <laughs> 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 it's putting it's his kids to bed. So, is this something you see system wide uh, that? eventually will have an impact but right now it's still like in the works being shaped being discussed but you're keeping an eye on it uh, it's been actually it's been approved and so the money is going to be dis distributed but there's all kinds of things that you have to comply with and which makes it a little bit complicated so it's a good thing overall it's a problem we want to have uh we just need to figure out how to allocate the money and and uh in the, the most appropriate way got it okay next question Hi, uh, my name is Steve Stearns. I'm an MBA student here at Davis, former chef. And my question is for uh, Sarah. Uh, I was wondering <coughs> some of the projects that you might be working on. Uh, could you share some with us, such as maybe you guys are working on HLB, since I know that the citrus screening disease is starting to become prevalent in California. Um, thank you guys for being here as well. Thank you very much for the question. Um, it's definitely a huge concern to bear uh, HLB, the Wang Lung Bing, I think I pronounced it right, citrus greening, um, transmitted by the citrus, uh, uh, by the by the citrus psyllid, Asian citrus psyllid, and it's been a huge, huge issue in Florida, and I think we have our first signs here in California that it's also entered despite lots of efforts to try to keep it out. Um, and then of course, other industries all over the world are really concerned about this because basically what it does is there's um, infection of the root system and it just uh, shrivels up and the tree just completely dies. They've, they've, there's no cure for it and they need to come in and basically replant um, huge plantations of citrus and so um, if there isn't something done about it, our, our orange and orange juice prices will uh, skyrocket. So it's a, a huge concern for Bayer. Obviously, we have products that, that can be used on the psyllid itself, but no product, no seed, no technique is a silver bullet for anything. It really needs to be an integrated solution. And so 
Um, I know from what I've heard from colleagues that are on um, a citrus task force that there's lots of work being done with pheromones, with products, with plant growth products, basically trying to look at the issue from, from all, different, all different standpoints, including some of our biological products. One of the products um, I support um, is based on a beneficial Bacillus subtilis strain and when incorporated into the soil promotes the health and resistance of, of plants and um, we're doing trials in, in citrus for, for that particular problem. I want to thank you for that question, and Sarah, by the way, I've got an acquisition target for you here coming up. So there's a company spun out of uh, UC Davis called XDB Technologies, focus on this very same, you know, this issue. So it turns out that, you know, the Florida citrus industry is in rapid decline because of this, and um, this HLB, uh, it's an ag a very aggressive infection for the, for the trees, and there's no known cure, as Sarah said. Uh, and there's, very, there's an urgent need to kind of fix this. There's about $3.6 billion loss and uh, in production over the last five years, about 6,600 jobs because there isn't any reason to pull, you know, green free <laughs> green citrus off the trees, I guess. Um, and 2015 was a record lowest harvest in Florida in the last 50 years. So it's a very serious problem. And this, uh, as we all living organisms, we 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 have an odor. Unfortunately, I smell like beer right now and pizza, but. Um, so XDB has a technology that can actually, uh, uh, so if there's an infestation in a tree, it can actu you can take a sample, you send it to them, and within a one or two hours, they can detect whether this tree is in infested or not, and then you can go out back and take that tree out before it spreads, because it's very infectious, so it'll spread onto all the other trees. So this is a brand new startup out of Davis, is getting a lot of attention, and obviously uh, has some really great application. Did you know that Yolo County has a dog team dedicated to sniffing out citrus greening and other various pests and diseases? I had no idea. That is amazing. This is true. We <laughs> have a dog team for this. So dogs that are amazing. I just read recently they can <laughs> sniff out cancer, too. So I think uh, oh yeah. man's best friend or and woman's best and friend. And diabetes patients yeah, yeah. that need, yeah. need yeah. insulin. We I'm station get another them dog. at the post office. Because one of the ways that this disease travels is when people mistakenly send stuff to other states, like mm -hmm. from Florida to here. Yeah. And so the dogs sniff it out and stop it before the box gets opened and all kinds of hell breaks No, I've heard this is, this is an, uh, I've even heard on golf shoes. Like you you play golf in some other state or whatever, and then you bring your golf shoes back in here and you wear out on the golf course. Uh, I mean, that's a minor problem compared to what we're talking about, but just shows you how it can be, these things can be transmitted. And, uh, I know we have another question, but I, I did want to ask about some, uh, you know, these very cool things that are coming out of Yolo County, because you had mentioned the insect that eats plastic, uh, and now the dog team that sniffs out s citrus disease. So yeah, what are some other, what are some other examples coming out of um, the private sector, UC Davis, that uh, are on its way, or could just really have an impact, you know, worldwide? I was just... Um, you know, what are we, what should we be keeping an eye out for? Because I, I, I know we were talking about drones and, um, you know, big data, sexy stuff, but, you know, what really is going to make an impact? Just one or, you know, one example from each of you. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I mean, there's several companies in the last few years, and again, yeah, I've only been here about six months, so I got some notes to make sure I don't make any mistakes here, but... Um, uh, one that maybe is not so sexy, but I kind of think it is because we've got this drought con 
condition in uh, California, obviously, and water is very scarce. And there's a company called Thule Technologies, and they div- they build sensors, and they put sensors in a field, and they can figure out when plants are stressed, and they can figure out where to water and when not to water. And so you can. Thule's an Agstar graduate. I'm sorry. Agstar graduate. Mm-hmm. There you go. See he collaboration. Yes, collaboration. I asked Good. him to come. He yeah. d- he couldn't make it tonight. No, no, no. He th- he's very busy trying to run a company. I mean, that's that's uh, probably we're lucky to have Jeremy here because he'd probably rather be in the lab to tell you the truth. So that you know, that's really cool. It's it's I wouldn't call it high tech, but I mean, these farmers are going to be able to look on their phone and say this the 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 plants over in the far left part of my field are stressed, so they need less water, more water, whatever. And you can you can customize the uh, you know the program to to you so know do the right thing. Tully like the fog, Tully fog. T U L E. U L E. Yeah, yeah. Um, and a couple of, and then on total on the other end of the spectrum, there's a company called Ag for Hire, and it's that's a basically kind of an app that that also an Egg Start graduate. There you go. See more collaboration. Uh, yeah. See, this is what it takes. It takes a whole bunch of layers to make to make this happen. But this is basically an app that hooks up farmers to workers on on a seasonal basis. So uh, you know you can. It's kind of like a. Uh, I don't want to kind of a matching dating site or whatever. Basically, you can the worker. LinkedIn for farmers, right? Thank you. That's a much better way to put it. So you can, if you're if you're a farm worker, you can put your experience, you can put you know what you've done, blah blah blah, your resume online, when you're available, and you can even negotiate price over this, and then you and then the farmers can bring people in uh, seasonally or whenever they need them to uh, address their needs. So, um, yeah, there's a few cool examples. Cool ones, yeah. Uh, other ones that you know, AgStar. Uh, yeah, current? Astrona's pretty cool. Astro- yeah, yeah, definitely. You want to be an Agstar graduate? Yeah. Astrona is actually our best example of anything that's ever happened at the university. So I'll let Jeremy expand on that right now. <laughs> that's an endorsement. So uh, let's see. What uh, what are some of the exciting stuff that our guys are working on? Um, I have this company. So <laughs> let me give you some context. There's like 2,000 soil moisture sensor companies. They're kind of a, dial, a dime a dozen. The market is really flooded with soil moisture sensors right now. Usually, a soil moisture sensor can sense about one inch around its, uh, its uh, what you might call it, its device. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's probe. Thank you. Thank you. See, this is why I need a scientist. <laughs> That's right. Thank you. Thank you. Tensiometer. I have a company right now that uh, rigged up some MRI technology and can sense molecules of all types in a 10-inch sphere around their tensiometer. That is extraordinary. And it's extraordinary not just for water. It's also extraordinary because now you can test how much nitrogen is in your soil, how much selenium, how much... I mean, a, a bill, phosphorus, a, whatever it is that you want to test for, you can punch the molecules in and it will tell you what is in your soil. Um, that company is called Waterbit. I have another one called Wexis um, that has figured out how to work with PG&E, which by itself is like an extraordinary hallelujah uh, moment, especially for farmers who have a tendency to spend way too much money on, on uh, energy for, for pumps and wells. Um, and I have seen them walk in the door and immediately save farmers in excess of 40 grand. And that is a life-changing, that's college education for that farmer's kids. That's a life-changing uh, amount of money that's for many farmers. Too, 40K. Yeah. <laughs> we have Ag for Hire, of course. They're off to Australia. Congratulations to them. Um, we have Big Data. We have Big Data for small farms. 
which is um, which is a huge problem. I mean, there's lots of big data companies who want to work with farms that are thousands of acres, but nobody wants to work with the farms that are half acre, two acres, five acres, that are doing you know 15 to 200 different products. That's really hard. That's a lot of variables to work with in terms of data. Um, so AgShift is another one that's kicking butt out there. I'd say those those are my those are my top ones no, right this second. No drones, no nothing with drones. I had someone asked me today like anything with drones. We do have yeah. a UAV company um, who has not thought of a name yet um, that is able to. Uh, I don't know if they can do it yet, but they're thinking in the direction of being able to sense water and depths from the sky. Yeah, there's a, so there's a lot of activity. There's a lot of research going on at UC Davis right now for imaging from the from from the sky. And frankly, I, I was driving down the highway the other day, and I I love small planes and flying and stuff. And I see those guys, you know, coming over the highway and, and doing all the spray and all that. will all be replaced with drones eventually. And drones will be able to go over your field and see the stresses. I talked about you know earlier instead of having sensors, you might be able to just image them and figure out what's going on. And so I think yeah, it, we're on a really great path to some really cool stuff Very and it's cool all stuff. coming out of this area. Yeah. Automated I harvesters is going to be a huge one. Automated harvesters. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Ah, thank yeah. you. Yeah, so yeah. there's a company called Yellow Robotics that uh, is all about harvesting strawberries. So it's a it's all, you know, uh, we'll play some labor, but it's a it's a uh, automated system for plucking strawberries. Very cool. Yeah, I was going to say all of these technologies are super interesting to us because we are not we are not the people that are coming up with these technologies. Rather, we're the type of company that are partnering with these sorts of companies to be able to use some of that technology, like drones, for example, being able to not even for application, although that's really interesting as well and will definitely affect us, but even for sensing minute changes in a plant and seeing what a treatment is doing for the health or the nutrition quality of the plant, um, there's a verticillium sensor, I believe, that sh uh, plants will fluoresce or give off a certain infrared uh, wavelength if they're under a certain amount of verticillium stress. Yeah. So being able to come in and and mitigate before it becomes just a situation where you have to use a strong chemistry, otherwise you lose your crop, for example. So all of these sorts of things, being able to look at how soil type affects microbial interactions with plants, um, it, it's all gonna become part of that fold. Um, one thing I, par I participated, I think it was last month, and I was look, uh, in the, the food tank conference that was in Sacramento, and there, were, there was a lot of um, ag technology being discussed there. I think it's the next wave is soil and just what we can do to increase our soil health. Um, there were a lot of discussions about that. Another thing that we can affect is there's so much loss from harvest to your refrigerator and even in your refrigerator. So what can we do to get in there and help with a the harvest? There was a company that comes in and if a farmer has way too much to harvest, for example, they can partner with that company to come out, have their staff harvest. Um, and so just looking at kind of not just what's growing and what can we do to mitigate that with technology, but looking at it from a holistic standpoint all the way down the food chain and seeing where we can put some of these things in place with technology, but then also with people using the technology. 
foodfully. That's another yeah, UC no, Davis. Yeah, just popped up. Yeah, mm -hmm. I was just gonna just say there, that there's all kinds of efforts going on here to to minimize waste. I read somewhere ten years ago or something that forty percent waste in America is acceptable, and you see what people dump off their plates. And there's there's actually no reason to do that in restaurants too. So recapturing some of that. Uh, I, so you might know a little bit more about foodfully than I, than I do, but so I'd like you to talk about that. And I just want to touch, I want to make a bold prediction. Right now we're doing things like the monitoring stress of plants and agriculture with uh, sensors, and then we're going to do it with drones, and it's going to be by satellite eventually. So yeah, yeah, oh, there you go, yeah, yeah, very cool, yeah, well there you go. Okay, my prediction was correct. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I have another question here in the audience, yeah, step up. Sure, sure. All right, this question's for each one of you. I read an interesting white paper by the Brookings Institute today on leveraging R&D funding from federal agencies, primarily the Department of Defense. If a large federal agency like the DOD were to invest in an R&D center that focused on food security, as this is uh, an issue that the Joint Chiefs have talked about before, what are the top three things that each one of your interests would ask for as far as focus from one of these centers? So I'm not sure I understood the question. So the last sure. part is where I was with you right till the, what would we, what would we ask for? Yeah, sure. As focusing on small business innovation. Uh-huh. Maybe that includes an SBIR. Right. Maybe that includes support for consortium management. Okay. Maybe that is a focus on what its particular needs are in its own development. Mm -hmm. So what do you think those top three things would be for venture catalyst, small company, a county, municipality, and potentially a prime contractor? Go, go, go. From from my standpoint, I'm just thinking, I'm like, okay, I have an idea. This guy has a really cool idea. I need to pitch this idea to my boss. What am I going to have to put on a piece of paper to, to kind of make it fly? I mean, first and foremost, what is the benefit to our grower? So return on investment of, of whatever technology that we're going to use. Um, also, what is the impact on our end consumer, the person that's going to buy the food? How does it... Um, how does whatever technology we're using impact through the, the food chain? And then, of course, that has to be cost because that needs to, to come and weigh, weigh into the equation as well. Um, so, I mean, in three simple bullet points, that would be what I would put on a piece of paper, for example, just uh, for some of the pre preliminary uh, justifications. All right, so this was in the context of what you would ask for in a proposal if you submit to one of these uh, the department of defense is that uh, so i'm still i'm sorry i'm a little i'm probably you know i gave up coffee two weeks ago and it's really <laughs> starting to hit me no right no now. that's good your adenosine receptors <laughs> i'm sure are thanking you for that if an r d center were to partner with anyone in the yolo county area uc davis county anyone really in order to support innovation and development for small companies in food security. Okay. What would Venture Catalyst ask for as far as partnership or a focus that one of these centers could provide? 
Uh, so we wouldn't ask for anything. I mean, we'd just help you do that. So I'm still, I, I guess I'm still, so, uh, well, first of all, when you're deal dealing with DOD, it's going to be a contract, right? So it's not going to be a grant. So you're going to have to be, have. Well, it could be, it could be an SBIR as well, far no, as that. it's SBIR, but if you're with DOD, my understanding, and I may be wrong, is that those are contracts. Those are not grants. You're going to have to have deliverables. It's not research. This is a commercial, you know, it's, it's all about small business, right? So, well, sure. And we do, to that point, I mean, we do uh, seminars and things will help you file an application uh, to a, uh, a particular, you know, solicitation. But so I'm, yeah, I'm still struggling. So v venture catalyst, we don't, we don't want any. We would just want you to succeed. So we'll, we'll provide you all the resources that we can to help you get your, you know, grant application in and be successful. Yeah, sure. If, if there were something like a national laboratory user facility, okay, and the focus was on food security okay. and there were support mechanisms in this center or user facility in place to help out small business and innovative work. Okay. What would uh, an entity like Venture Capitalist hope that one of these hypothetical user facilities be able to provide, such as maybe something like LabCorp? that was formed by the Department of Energy. Okay. So, yeah, so uh, this is where m my mind wants to explode between the SBIR and the SCTR. So w what's expected in the SCTR is you actually have to have a non-profit research institution to collaborate with, and 30% and to 60% of that work can be done there. So it gives you a little bit of flexibility. The small company has to do 60% uh, of the work. Um, so the only thing that's expected, so you have to have a, ah, so maybe I'm starting to understand your question a little more. Um, the work that's done at that nonprofit institution is going to be owned by that institution. So you're going to have to license it out. You're going to have to have all those, all that arrangement done ahead of time before they'll actually give you the money. Um, but that's pretty standard. I mean, it happens all the time. So, um, and yeah, if you're going to work with a research institution and your principal investigator is at that institution, then the SCTR is the way to go. If not, then the SBIR is a better way to go. But I, as far as the obligations and requirements you're going to have are, are dictated by the government. So I don't know. Is, is this addressing your question at all? Um, More like a hypothetical situation. If there were something like a new type of user facility that facilitated small business innovation research, maybe it was providing a new framework for SBIRs. Maybe it was looking at figuring out how to support better consortium formation with prime contractors in order to figure out whether or not the SBIR route is the way to go in forming some of these things. So is the question, is that a viable model? Is that, I mean, are you thinking about setting up one of the, I mean, oh, yeah. is, 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 is this the way that <laughs> I, know, I feel like there's, I actually I feel like there's love a, this question. Yeah, okay. this. Is this the path that, yeah. that uh, you see going down, I guess, partnering with? This uh, is the blank check question. Yeah, okay. kind of, pretty okay. much, pretty and much. And it doesn't actually, I mean, he's using DOD as an yeah. example, yeah. but it could be almost any entity. Yeah, de Department, Department of, of Agriculture, Department yeah. of Energy. Here's $100 yeah, one million. Of dollars. Yeah, sure. What do you want to do? Yeah. To further ag tech. Yeah. Right? Yeah, sure. I, if there was some type of mm -hmm. center or institute or user facility that facilitated small business innovation development. Mm -hmm. 
So I think a facility is fantastic. I mean, you heard from Jeremy that this region struggles a little bit with having uh, enough wet lab um, uh, facilities. Uh, so that's Pam Marone does often mention the lack of wet lab. <laughs> right, yeah. right. She's she's the evangelist of I need I need more wet lab facilities. Um, but I, if it's okay with you, I want to take this question in a different way, because I think that we're missing something else that could be solved with money. And here's what it is. Um, it, at the end of the day, it does not matter what fantastic technologies we develop if no one uses them. And even though we are in the process of ramping up innovation, and even though we are in the process of ramping up investment to make more of those innovations happen, where ag tech falls down is in the actual translation to agriculture. And Sarah can attest that even Bayer, even Monsanto still have trouble talking to to farmers and and facilitating um, and facilitating adoption there are two examples in our history when we have done it and when we have done it well and they're both American the first is during the 1930s and the Dust Bowl happened right the Dust Bowl happened the federal government established an organization known as the National Resource Conservation Service and they funneled a large sum of money and still continue to funnel sums of money to NRCS and what NRCS does is it gives grants to farmers to adopt conservation practices and those practices could be uh, flow meters on their wells it could be hedgerows it could be cross fencing uh, it could be uh, making sure that you're not overgrazing land. It could be making sure that your crop rotation is on point. It could be soil sampling. And, and now we think of those things as pretty basic in terms of farming. But back in the 1930s, these were pretty revolutionary. And doing those things pr helped prevent future dust bowls. So that's the first example. The second example is uh, during the 1970s-ish, uh, we had a, we had a, a USDA uh, ag commissioner who stood up and said, get big or get out. Uh, and this was really the hallmark slogan for uh, what we now know as uh, the Green Revolution. Right? So the Green Revolution was another example when the federal government opened up the coffers and gave money directly to farmers to adopt new technologies so that they could get big or get out. Right. So I believe, I believe, and this here's my answer to the blank check question. In addition to supporting innovation and helping small entrepreneurs get up and start new things and do cool new things, I believe that we need to put money into the other end of the equation. I believe that we are going to need, in order to hit our our population explosion goals in order to mitigate climate change, in order to deal with drought and labor issues and everything else that is gonna plummet down on agriculture, in order to deal with those and help it, adoption happen faster, we're gonna need to incentivize farmers. And that is what I would do with my blank check. So great, so that provides a little context to me. So uh, I think this money might be best coming from corporations instead of the government because the government wants to fund very fundamental research and what I think we're talking about here is a more of applied research. In the semiconductor industry there's a, a entity called the Semiconductor Research Corporation and it's like a hundred companies in that space that they fund technology at a whole bunch of di different universities and they have rights to to exploit that. So yeah I don't know that I mean the blank check thing is uh, you know the government likes to at least have kind of a clue what you're going what you what you may do with it but maybe that's more of a corporation consortium that would that would make sense uh, yeah. 
So, and and I, I think that would. I think that, you know, the corporations spread all this out and they all get non-exclusive rights or whatever, and, and it just, uh, mm -hmm. it's good yeah. for them. We've definitely seen, you can, uh, as you can imagine, the adoption of biological solutions has not been an easy path for us, and we're still um, working on it in terms of communicating why they're different, how they're different, how they have to be used differently. But talking about the adoption curve, for example, being able to go to those growers that are already using solutions like biologicals and sorry I talk a lot about that because that's what I do but and it's a, a an example of a technology that we're still trying to push in terms of adoption um, but in terms of going directly to those growers having them be the evangelicals to promote the use of them word spreads around around the area hey what how are you able to harvest your lettuce two weeks before me? You know, it, what are you doing? And so just being able to put that technology in the growers' hands, have them use it, they're the ones that know how to use it the best. I can train them all I want on what a microbe is, how it colonizes a plant, you know, how it promotes the growth of a plant, but they know their practice, they know their soil, they know their plants. They're gonna be the ones that really are going to spearhead the, the technology and take it. So I would absolutely agree with that. We've had success in, in different cases where we've gone directly to the grower versus through our own development organization, for example. So would you give your blank check, essentially, to give free product to farmers to try things out and help spur adoption? I mean, that's what we already do. I, and so we, when we do demonstration trials, for example, hey, I have a new technology that we're, we want you to test out, you know, the, there's an agreement that is is come you know the grower can set aside a certain part of his field to do the testing that's his investment in this and and it's a risky one too because they're setting aside a certain part of their field so you better be darn sure that your technology works and then of course being able to supplement with whatever product service that you can to meet him halfway and then you're you're a partner it's not that we're just pushing product on buy this product for me because that's never going to work uh jeremy i would ask you what you would do with your blank check and then so we have to start wrapping it up so i don't want to make it you know push you but yeah i'll actually try to answer the question that you asked um funding funding and funding no <laughs> <laughs> so i think the first one for most startups is actually funding so it's finding some way to work with the entity to uh, provide funds to the company for specific UK use cases that the uh either the Department of Defense or whatever government or corporate uh, entity is going to be in this space. Another one would be uh, a partner for writing these these grants from uh, the government. You know, we have a great asset here for writing SBARs and STRs with professors, but um, some people in this space could also be good partners for, for specific use cases. And I think the last one um, would be provide a space, you know, to maybe bring potential customers through bring like big corporations through so they can meet some of the entrepreneurs in the area all at once like at a certain time so that everybody gets exposed it's a, you know you, you you kind of condense the amount of trips who have to make and they can introduce them to a lot of companies at once so we have time for two more questions i'll take the last one and you can take the first one the i'll take one and yeah, th thanks for coming here. I, w I actually work at Ag and Natural Resources, which is like a like a thousand feet down there, and I live over there. And I was just like biking by, and it's just like, <laughs> what's going on? Okay, I'll stay around for a beer. Uh, so thanks for coming, and thanks for putting all of this on. Um, 
but it's like one of my questions uh, was, and I think it was uh, Joe, I'd like to kind of like expand on that. You mentioned the Area 52, um, and I was just wondering, it's like what kind of things, it's like maybe a, like a wish list for local like maker spaces to have as like a wet lab or some kind of thing where they would want to do, it's like what kind of things would you need um, to, to have, you know, to kind of promote this kind of um, it's like biotech um, innovation as far as like maker spaces and maker labs kind of thing, if you wanted to expand on that. Yeah, so I mean, we're very fortunate to start with Area 52. I mean, we're, we are seriously fortunate to have uh, Mike Hart and Sierra Energy, the Sierra Energy Research Park uh, coming together. It's a nonprofit organization. He's taking a lot of risk. He's investing a lot of money to make space because he, as well as my colleague Zane, and I'm sure Jeremy exp experienced it early on. And, you know, a lot of companies can start in a garage, but a lot of companies can't. And making that space available has been a problem uh, in the Davis area, my understanding. And so uh, Air 52 is 31,000 square feet. It's got office space. It, has, it will have some wet lab space, but it's mostly for the, what I call the hard sciences, uh, biomedical devices, engineering. Um, and so there's co-working space, office. There's going to be a restaurant. Uh, it's really, you know, we're just absolutely, you know, incredibly lucky to have that. It's got a machine shop in it. So this was the space that was uh, Guy Moeller, I guess, the flying car guy. Remember? You used to work there? Okay. So I've been reading about flying cars forever. And uh, so anyway, there's, so there, there's space there for making composites. And so I I there's going to be an educational facility so you can teach you how to make uh, prototypes and things, and it's it's really a rapid prototyping facility. Because the problem is, if you go out and make one prototype, and it's and by the way, the first one will never be right. You got to do it again. Sometimes these molds and things can be literally fifty thousand dollars, where you'll be able to make it here for a lot less than that. And then on the wet lab side, we're very lucky to have HM Close uh, on Mace Boulevard that has provided about three thousand square feet of space for life sciences and wet lab. Um, so it holds about 11 companies for a very uh, small amount of money and a little bit of equity. Um, you get uh, a bench and access to shared chemicals and shared, you know, refrigerators and, you know, vac um, you know, just a whole array of things that, uh, that you wouldn't be able to buy on your own. For, for and then uh, we're also trying to get an uh, um, incubator up at the medical school in Sacramento, the School of Medicine. Med Catalyst is what we're calling that. So when that's up and running, that should be enough. I mean, they're going to fill up very quickly. There's a lot of need here. There actually turns out to be a lot of space, which is one of the reasons I was interested in coming here. There is there is a lot of space. It just needs to be converted for the uh, activities that we need. So I hope that kind of answered. I'll just add, we were actually at the HM Close facility as well. It's the UC Davis. It's just south of town where Campbell Seed used to be. They really have a lot of good equipment, so you can save money <laughs> on the initial purchase of like 30000 you know, $20,000 pieces of equipment. I mean, that's like the first time I've ever heard of that, so I think like publicity. So, <laughs> yeah, It's, it's no, about this a is year out. So yeah. what he's Area talking 52. about, Area 52 is about a year okay, or so, so out. And yeah. we're yeah. actually yeah. doing a partnership with them when they get right. up and running it's to gotta move be, So for ag stuff, you need like high ceilings for a lot, <laughs> for a lot of things. So, so Area 52 yeah. will do that. And fields. Well, they're going to have, and they're going to have, we brought up drones earlier, they're going to have a drone cage. So an area in which you would actually... They're calling it the drone zone. The I drone mean, this is zone. all like theoretical right now, and it sounds really delicious. Yeah. So we, we have a, a year to, to kind of get there. 
Because I was yeah. going to ask, uh, is it individuals or is it companies? Like, what are the requirements to enter? Is that still to, to be decided? Or so, yeah, yeah, yeah Area 52 is open to everybody, basically. Okay. Um, and then HM Close, that's our little partnership, I think, for the smaller space, Med Catalyst. And the school of medicine is going to be that, but then all these other spaces are going to be yeah. open. For and then for AgStart, we actually have two sites. We have one in Davis, and we that's opening in just a couple of weeks. And then we have one in Woodland. And the crucial thing about AgStart, and especially the space in Woodland, is that if you want to be with farmers, you have to go to where they are. And quite honestly, Davis is not the place where farmers are going to come. So you can develop beautiful technologies at UC Davis, but it gets very difficult to have them migrate this direction. Yeah, every time you talk so about Woodland. I know Woodland is Woodland and the unincorporated areas of Yolo County and our work um, with me as the conduit between AgStart and all of our, you know, 800 plus farming operations throughout Yolo County. That's how we're able to translate the stuff from the theoretical makerspaces into real world application. Can I dispute that slightly because I And briefly, I, please. I'm, I'm spoiled, but it's like I work for, you know, the ex university extension and so that's like part of what we do. And yes. if we're not yes. doing that, we're failing. So we should probably like yes. talk about like yes. doing that better. I didn't bring up cooperative extension because it, I. Thank you, you did just did. Yeah, right, cooperative extension is such an awesome, unique, extraordinary program that hardly anybody knows exists. And gee golly, I wish that, I wish that the whole world, we could say the words cooperative extension and everybody would just cheer because it's amazing. Watch, okay. your, watch your language, Erica. <laughs> gee, so, gee golly. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to ask last question, and, and then we're going to wrap it up because we are officially going over time. But uh, I, I'm going to uh, get this into a podcast, and just also what I do is I break it down, you know, by minutes and subjects so that it's going to be a two-hour-long podcast, but it will be divided up into part sections, and so you can give it to everybody who couldn't make it tonight. But um, I wanted to circle back to a uh, question on the reason why I decided to put this panel together was that Greater Sacramento Area Economic Council event that was at Mandavi Center. And I know Christy was there, and I don't know if any of you were there. Okay. Uh, I thought it was interesting, you know, the I think I had mentioned Greater Sacramento uh, Economic Area Council. Their goal is to get more business coming into Sacramento. They're looking at ag tech. Um, and so they had a very industry-heavy um, audience. They are also talking about the need to grow uh, from within, but also bring companies in. So it's just interesting to me uh, how the Bay Area and what's been happening there has had an impact, uh, definitely here in this area, and in, in many ways, the traffic, um, housing growth, housing price increases, uh, job growth in some ways, industries that are being looked at and built at or, or perceived. So in terms of ag tech, um, for each of you, I'm wondering, with the Bay Area going through changes, how are those changes going to be uh, affecting what you're doing in ag tech? Like, will it be easier to get venture capitalists to come from Sand Hill Road here because growth is moving out here? Um, the farm to fork movement, you know, going to where the food is. Um, what do you see coming down the pipeline just in general based on what's happening on so many levels economically? Uh, geographically, what do you see that affecting the ag tech industry? Can I go first? Do you Christy. You know, first and foremost, I think besides the obvious and anticipated influx of money, I think we're going to see an influx of talent. 
I think that stable of phantom entrepreneurs that I wish that I had sometimes to match make with, with research um, will suddenly appear as a result of the exodus of talent. Um, and you know, quite honestly, I, I think we're seeing it already. Um, just in the last year, there have been four, five food manufacturing companies that have left the Bay Area and have now made their home in Yolo County, and they brought all of their workers with them. And soon, all of their friends are gonna come. And soon, we're gonna see just a whole influx of talent. So money, for sure, that I expect that to come, but I think the talent is, um, is crucial. I could, I mean, adding on to that, as far as companies moving this way, I mean, when we were coming back, we'd, you know, we were pricing out um, the cost per square foot of like a wet lab in the Bay Area versus a wet lab here, and it's it's almost an order of magnitude higher in the Bay Area to run a lab. And so I think as and those rates are only climbing. So as as those vol volumes of money come up, and those 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 companies that are in the ag food spaces in the Bay Area realize that there's a nice community here of good talent, they'll follow as long as we have the space for them to move into as well. Yeah, since we're, on the, since we're on the talent subject, I mean, I think that's one of the big reasons why, because I, I came from the smaller company, AgriQuest, and we're a talented organization that knew what we were doing, and we're some of the only ones who knew it best. And it's really the talent of the people, and being in this area, you know, some of the lower costs, um, faster timelines to be able to construct a building, different things like this all come together. And then Sacramento itself, I mean, I, per I live there. I personally see it growing in itself as a city as well, or just this general area. And so it's a really nice place to live. I think that the more we focus on what we have to offer here as a, as a local community, that will really help drive growth. Um, and then also think of ways that we can continue to collaborate without necessarily forcing or, or coercing people to come here. For example, in the digital space, when we talk about digital farming and or, or just m metadata, dealing with lots of data, leveraging the talents that someone on a computational life sciences path that has no idea what agriculture is or you know what a farm is has never stepped foot on a farm they know how to deal with big data in in the bay area and so trying to find ways to capitalize on what's already existing work with them and build ourselves up at the same time so um, finding finding more ways to collaborate i think will really be helpful joe last word uh, oh last word wow great how much time do we have no. Um, so I'm a transplant, actually, I, I, at the Greater Sacramento Economic Council or whatever. I heard that 18,000 people a year are moving from the Bay Area to Sacramento. I'm one of those. I moved uh, three years ago after 35 years in, in Palo Alto. And the, and the problem with that area is it's incredibly saturated. You know, you've got uh, all the kind of high-tech stuff going on and the Googles and the Groupons and the all, there's a long list of companies. and. But then in the ag thing, I mean, you're talking about the cost of real estate. I mean, you try a farm. Can you imagine eight hundred dollars a square foot or something for, you know, to try to grow corn or something? It just it's it's not going to happen. So I think the town and, and nobody can afford a house there. I mean, it's totally outrageous. I'm glad I lived there when I did, but it's gridlock and it's but now the the bad news maybe is it's going to happen here. 
and this is a very early stages, and that's just part of that's just part of the growth. But that talent's going to come along with it. The investment's going to come along with it. Yes, the housing prices are probably going to go up, and and uh, but along with that, you're going to get this. What <laughs> you know, we 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 always talk about this innovation um, ecosystem, and what we don't want here is the innovation ecosystem, right? Which is which is kind of what was happening. We used to joke uh, in Palo Alto that you'd walk down the street and and, and you'd see somebody. Uh, you'd be walking your dog, and they would say hi to your dog and not you. So one, one thing I really love about Davis is that it's very friendly. It's very cooperative. You know, people are very willing to share and, and, uh, and collaborate. Uh, and as a matter of fact, I think it was uh, voted fifth friendliest city in the United States at one point. So, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of you know, I, I just think this area is going to explode, which is one of the reasons I moved here. I, I just think that it's going to do really uh, well. And part of that, most of that is going to be because of ag because the other areas have everything else, but we have the space and we all have the talent and we're gonna get more talent and more money. Okay, well on that note, thank you panelists so much for coming out and thank you guys for coming out too. I will download the podcast so that everyone can hear because this is such a great discussion and more should hear it. So thanks again. And thank you Sudwork again for hosting in such a great spot.